The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of important announcements. Number one, we have located a building facility that we are going to, we are seriously investigating. We have negotiated the price, all of that information, which will be made known to you. But we're going to attempt to set up a open house so that everyone in the congregation can go by and visit the new location on Saturday, August the 6th in the afternoon, early afternoon. For those of you who come for the evangelism, uh, personal witnessing workshop, that will be at 10 a.m. here in the North Wing with uh, Gene Brown, 10 a.m. on the 6th. So we'll probably have the open house over at the new place from something like noon to 2 that Saturday. Then that Sunday, which is August the 7th, we will have a congregational discussion and vote after class that particular Sunday night. So make sure you mark all of that on your calendar. And this Saturday, July 23rd, at 10 a.m., we'll have a prep school meeting over here in the North Wing. Also, several people asked about Ulan. I have not heard anything from him in about four or five days. He was supposed to go to a hearing today and in Berlin. I haven't heard anything. Emailed him early this morning for a report and have not heard uh, from him. So continue to pray for him as... Uh, we don't know what his status will be. This is going to go on for some time, so we'll just keep, keep it before the Lord. Before we begin this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to focus and study on God's Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to come before your throne of grace this evening to bring this congregation before you. We pray that you would guide and direct us as we seek another facility where we can meet. We pray that you would continue to provide for us, and we thank you for the way that you have provided for us to this point. Father, we thank you above all things for your word, for all that it means to us, and for the way you work through the indwelling Holy Spirit and through his filling ministry and teaching us your word, that we may grow and advance in our spiritual life. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Now, in Genesis 17, we saw the situation where God reconfirmed the covenant with Abraham and instituted the sign of the covenant which was circumcision. 
When you come to the end of chapter 17, we find that Abraham and all the males in the household have fulfilled God's command to be circumcised. There is also, in Genesis chapter 17, a specification of the Abrahamic covenant that now the seed is going to come through not just Abraham, but Abraham and Sarah. And we also saw for the first time that the seed was specifically stated to be a son. Now we come to chapter 18. Chapter 18 is another test. Remember I pointed out that as we go through Abraham, there are 12 tests that are described in Abraham's life. These are tests of his faith, that is, tests of the doctrine in his soul. We have the same thing going on in each of our spiritual lives as we advance from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. James chapter 2 says that it's on the basis of these tests of faith that we apply the Word of God to the circumstances surrounding those tests, and that produces endurance. And endurance, in turn, produces maturity. So this is the basic mechanism that God uses to move us along the path of our spiritual life. The same is true for Abraham. We've seen test after test after test, and each test relates to some aspect of the promise or the, that God has given him in the Abrahamic covenant. So we come to chapter 18, and we're going to once again have a confirmation of the seed promise. But in this chapter, it is the most specific of all. The chapter begins with an appearance of Yahweh to Abraham, who then prepares a meal that they share. Following the meal, the Lord announces the fulfillment of the promise that it will be within the next year, and Sarah is over, is uh, listening through the tent flap, and she overhears the promise and laughs to herself, thinking that this is really an impossibility, and the Lord rebukes her for that and encourages her at the same time. So this is the framework for these first 15 verses. In this section, we really see two tests. It begins in chapter 18, verse 1, and this entire section extends down through the end of chapter 19. 18, 1 through 15 focuses on this initial phase of the visit where we have the uh, fellowship meal between Abraham and the Lord, the reiteration of the promise of the coming seed, and then there is an intercession Abraham is going to intercede for Lot, actually, not Sodom, but for Lot. And that comes in the second part of chapter 18. And then chapter 19 focuses on God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in the five cities of the plain. So this is a a unit between chapter 18 and chapter 19. The test for Abraham's spiritual life is actually a two-parter. It's a two-part test. The first part occurs when the strangers show up in verses 1 through 15. This is the first part of the test, or the first test, and it focuses on grace orientation. Is Abraham actually oriented to the grace of God, and how has this impacted his spiritual life in relation to the promise? 
And then beginning in verse 16, we see another test, and that test also focuses on his grace orientation. But in that context, it's related to the third provision of the Abrahamic covenant. Those who treat you lightly, I will curse, and those who bless you, I will bless. So Abraham is told to be a blessing to those around him, and that is what uh, is taking place in verses 16 down to 33. So the first test focuses on grace orientation as it is exhibited in hospitality. And the second test focuses on grace orientation as it is exhibited towards Lot, who has sort of uh, rejected Abraham and gone his own route, and the people who live in the five cities of the, of the plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities. So what orients us to the test in terms of Abraham's spiritual life in these two chapters is grace orientation. Now, what is grace orientation? Let's start off with a basic definition. Grace orientation means that we align our thoughts and our actions to God's grace. That's what orientation means. I remember years ago when I was in ROTC, we went out on an orienteering course, and I imagine they still teach that, although with the satellites and all the other technology they have today, most uh, soldiers in the field don't need it, but they need to know a little bit about land navigation just in case the computers break down. And I remember learning a topographical map and how to read all of the lines on a topographical map, how to orient to it, how to take your azimuth, how to uh, make your adjustments between true north and magnetic north. And when you're dropped down in the middle of flat East Texas piney woods, it's really tough to do orienteering because you don't have any landmarks that you can really focus on unless you run into a creek. But years later... I had the opportunity to lead a number of backpacking expeditions up into the Womenich Wilderness area up in Colorado, and I was ahead of a Christian uh, uh, wilderness backpacking, sort of an outward bound type of program, and we would teach uh, orienteering and and uh, compass usage and map reading and all those things to the uh, teenagers that went along on the, those trips. But that's what orientation means. It means to align something to reality. So out there in the middle of the woods, we would see all these mountain peaks in Colorado, and then we would look at our topographical map, try to figure out which peaks matched what features on the map until we aligned the map to fit reality. And that's what orientation means, to align our thinking to the reality of God's grace, because God's grace is a fundamental principle for living the Christian life. We have to understand that from the start of our salvation. That grace means that God does all the work, and we simply accept it, we simply receive it. It starts at salvation, where Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Completely, There's nothing left over for us to do. We can't uh, do anything that gains God's approval. We have to put our complete and exclusive trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in grace orientation, we learn humility, that we can't rely on our own talents, our own abilities, our own strengths at all in order to gain God's approval. It's fully and totally a matter of God's grace. 
And then when it comes to the Christian life, it's still a matter of God's grace. It never depends on who and what we are. Blessing in the Christian life, once again, is not dependent upon who we are. It's dependent upon the fact that we possess the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It goes back to salvation. At the instant of salvation, God the Father imputes to the believer the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. First uh, Corinthians 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we have God's own righteousness in us, and that's the basis for God's blessing. It's never based on who and what we are. So people say, well, what about obedience? Sure, obedience has a place in the Christian life, but it's never the basis for God's blessing the believer. If it was, it's based on works, and that violates God's grace policy. God distributes those blessings. That remember, according to Ephesians 1.3, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing at the instant of salvation. It's ours potentially, but it's only distributed as we grow, not because we obey, but as a result of the spiritual maturity that takes place after we're saved. Same thing happens in life. You can use the analogy of looking at a five- or six-year-old boy, and a father, proud father may decide that he wants to purchase a classic car for that five- or six-year-old boy. But he's not going to give him the car keys until he's old enough not to kill himself. See, the car is already his. But the distribution of the car, the actual possession and enjoyment of that car, doesn't come until the child is old enough to have the capacity to responsibly utilize what he has. The same thing is true in the Christian life. God has set aside every blessing for each one of us from the instant of salvation. It's set aside. The issue is, are we going to mature enough to be able to handle the blessing? And then it's distributed. So that completely excludes human works from the, uh, from the whole focus. So in grace orientation, we're to align our thoughts and our actions to God's grace. God's grace means we don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. God treats us the way he does on, for two reasons. Reason number one is because of who he is. It's his character. Because he has perfect righteousness and perfect justice, he is able to love with perfect integrity. Because he's immutable, that love has perfect stability. It never changes. It's never based on who we are. We change. We're obedient one day, disobedient the next. We're growing one day. We're going backwards the next day. But God's love is stable. Now, the basis for God's love for us as believers, not as unbelievers, but as believers, is that possession of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that his integrity is completely aligned and completely compatible with the righteousness of Christ that is in us. So he loves us, and he exhibits his grace toward us because, number one, of who he is, and number two, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, that lays the foundation for our grace orientation, because in grace orientation, we begin by aligning our thoughts and our actions to God's grace so that we recognize that everything we have, physically and spiritually, comes from God's 
undeserved favor. We don't deserve it. We never do anything to earn it or deserve it. And second, we realize that because everything we have comes from God, we don't earn it or deserve it. We, in turn, then are to treat other people in that same way. Not on the basis of what they deserve. They may be obnoxious. They may be mean. They may have done horrible things to us. But we treat them in grace. That means not on the basis of what they deserve, but on the basis of what? Our own integrity? No. can never be our own integrity. It's got to be on the basis of who God is. That's His integrity. And on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. So that's the starting point for understanding grace orientation. The more we understand what took place at the cross, the more we understand the dynamics of divine forgiveness at the cross, the more then we're able to deal with other people on the basis of grace. It means generosity, kindness, and goodness towards others, no matter what they deserve. They may deserve to to be hit over the head. They may deserve to be shot. They may deserve all kinds of horrible things because of the way they've acted. But we're going to treat them not on the basis of what they deserve, but on the basis of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Now, that leads to that next spiritual skill, which is really an offshoot of grace orientation. Remember, the basic spiritual skills are confession of sin, Walking by means of the Holy Spirit, faith rest drill, trusting God, claiming promises, doctrinal, uh, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. That's the foundation, orienting our thinking to grace and orienting our thinking to the Word of God. Then as we advance in spiritual maturity, we begin to develop a capacity for love as a fruit of the Spirit. And that begins with a personal love for God because that gives us the foundation of integrity to be able to love others. That's our motivation is personal love for God the Father. Then as we learn to love others, we call that impersonal love for others or impersonal love for all mankind. The impersonal term often sounds funny to folks. They hear impersonal and they think, well, that just means cold, it means distant. But that's not the nuance that we're emphasizing. We're emphasizing the fact that you don't need to have a personal relationship with the individual. It may be the clerk at the store. It may be somebody driving down the freeway that cut you off and you don't have a clue who they are. But you don't have to have a personal knowledge of that individual. You don't have to have a personal relationship with them. What you do have is personal love for God the Father, and because of that vertical relationship with God, then you're able to treat that person on the basis of grace. So impersonal love is an outgrowth of grace orientation. The term impersonal emphasizes the fact that we don't know the other person. You don't have to have a relationship with them. Another word that is often used to describe this kind of love is unconditional. In other words, we are not going to condition our love for another person on their behavior. We're not going to say, first of all, you do this, this, and this, and then I'm going to be kind to you, and then I'll be generous with you, then I'll be gracious to you. We say, no, my kindness, generosity, and goodness to you is based on an absolute standard, an external standard that goes outside of creation. 
And that's the only way you can have a solid basis for love. Because the love of God is immutable. It never changes. It doesn't shift. It doesn't waffle. It doesn't go back and forth. It is completely stable. And the problem with love that we have in the human realm is when you base it on a person's appearance, when you base it on a person's behavior, when you base it on your own feelings, on your own emotion, this changes from day to day, hour to hour, and sometimes minute to minute. It just depends on what's going on in your life. So it had to have real biblical love for other people. It has to be based on an infinite love that is immutable, that is never changing. So in impersonal love for others, we treat others as we would want to be treated. That's the basis for the command in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18.15, to love others as yourself. It's the basis for treating others with good manners, with courtesy, treating them with kindness and graciousness and benevolence, that no matter what they've done, what they might have done, what they've done to us, or what our personal opinion or biases toward them might be, we're going to treat them with a level of integrity and kindness and goodness and go the extra mile, and it has nothing to do with who they are or what they've done. Now, of course, this is very difficult. I think this is a level of spiritual life that challenges every single Christian because once the Lord starts working at us in that area and we get slapped around by a few Christians, you know, there's nobody's going to treat you bad like another Christian's going to treat you bad. Just believe me, if you haven't had that yet, you can just take it by faith. But if you're a pastor, that's one of the first lessons you learn is that the sheep are often like goats and they treat you much worse than your enemies treat you and claim it's all for some self-righteous reason. So we all struggle with this. That's why it's a supernatural product. The Christian life isn't difficult. It's impossible. It can only take place as a result of a supernatural factor, and that is God the Holy Spirit. So we're commanded to walk by means of the Spirit in Galatians 5.16. And then it's just a few verses later that Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit, from what? From the mechanics of walking by means of the Spirit. And those, that walking by means of the Spirit is clear from the context that the Holy Spirit works together with the Word of God. And when we're studying the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and as He is filling us with His Word, uh, Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16, then the result of that is spiritual growth. He produces the maturity. We don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't sit down and we say, okay, today I'm going to start doing this, this, and this. I'm going to start being moral today. I'm going to have integrity today. And we try to pull ourselves up just like any unbeliever can do. Well, sure, that's fine, that's good, but it's not the spiritual life. This is what Paul is addressing in Galatians 3.3. He said, having begun by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to be matured by the flesh? See, the sin nature can produce a counterfeit spirituality. It's just morality. What any non-Christian can do, go out and spend some time with certain religious groups, and you'll find that they're a lot more moral, perhaps, than some Christians you know. That's because they're trying to work their way to heaven. 
But if you're walking by means of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit is going to produce these character qualities in you. And the very first character quality listed in the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is love for God the Father and impersonal love for all mankind. They work together in tandem as your capacity for love for God grows. Your ability to love others also grows. And that capacity to love God is exhibited how? We've gone over this again and again. It's in many passages, John 14, John 16, 1 John, numerous ways. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. About six times in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells the Jews, you will love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you will what? You will be careful to observe all that I have commanded you, and you will keep my commandments. Over and over and over you see this connection between loving God and keeping His commandments. It's not legalism. It can be legalism. You can treat it legalism. But what legalism does is legalism comes along and says that God blesses me because of what I do. God blesses me because I've gone to church every night this week. God blesses me because I read my Bible every day this week. And so these products of the spiritual life or these responsibilities in the spiritual life become transformed into means of gaining or acquiring God's blessing. And that's not how God works. God, it, God has already given every blessing to us in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.3. It's up to us to grow and mature and to understand the dynamics of the spiritual life. Ephesians 4.32 gives us the basis. It says that we are to forgive others as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. That's the model. We have to spend time analyzing our own sin. How many times have we been obnoxious to God? I don't mean back before you were saved. I mean now that you're saved. How many times do you do things that just are completely offensive to the righteous standard of God? We do that every day. The more you think about what comprises sin, the more you realize the, the subtleties of your own arrogance, the more we realize how offensive that is to God. And the more you grow as a believer, the more you're going to understand just how offensive it becomes to God. This is one reason God has so many things in the Mosaic Law that render a person ceremonially unclean. I don't know when the last time you, was that you read through Leviticus, but you ought to do it sometime. Read through Leviticus, read through Deuteronomy, circle how many times you have this statement that if you do this or you do that, you're unclean. And you think, golly, if every time I do something that, that renders me ceremonially unclean, I have to go down to, to the uh, tabernacle or the temple and sacrifice another animal so that I can be back in fellowship with the Lord, you'd realize you might not get a whole lot of work done because you're running down to the temple all the time and you're having to perform all these sacrifices. And the point is to show how sinful man is and how our sin causes a breach in our fellowship and relationship with the Lord. So when we realize how much we do that violates God's standard, that is offensive and obnoxious to His righteousness and His justice, and we realize how freely He forgives us, and He forgives us of the same breach over and over and over again. That is the model for how we are to forgive one another. Peter asked the Lord, said, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. 
In other words, you just keep going on and on and on. There's no end to it. There's no end to the grace of God in our lives, so there's no end to our grace towards others. So, by way of introduction, we've looked at the key concept here that governs the spiritual life of Abraham in chapter 18. First of all, it's grace orientation. He has to align himself to the grace of God. Now, for Abraham, he's done that because of the Abrahamic covenant. And because of the Abrahamic covenant, God has given him three things, promised him three things, promised him land, seed, and a blessing. And these will all be expanded later on. But the land promise is his. That is really, it hides in the background of Genesis chapter 18. But God has given him this tremendous covenant, this tremendous promise of, of offspring, that he's going to be the father of kings and nations, that he's going to, they will possess the land of Canaan, and that they will be a blessing to all mankind. And so Abraham is contemplating that, and he understands grace, and that is being exhibited in his life in this chapter. So let's look now at the first verse, Genesis 18.1. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth trees. Now, some other versions translate this oak tree, but the terebinth tree isn't actually an oak tree, but it's something like that. It's a tree that grows to about 10 to 15 feet in height, and it has some uh, non-edible berries on it, and it has... Uh, and it grows throughout the uh, grew throughout the region in uh, Israel and Palestine, in the land of Canaan, and it's located in. Uh, they're called the oaks of Mamre or the terebinth trees of Mamre. Remember, Mamre was an Amorite who lived in the area of Hebron. And so here we have a map, and I've put an arrow on the map to indicate the location of Hebron, which is down in the southern part of the land of Canaan. And this was a Canaanite stronghold. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll remember that this was the city that Caleb finally took when they went into the land under Joshua. And this was where Caleb settled, and this was given as an inheritance to Caleb and his descendants. But that is several hundred years in the future. When we look at the significance of the uh, location of Mamre and the Oaks of Mamre in Hebron and Abraham, we go back to chapter 13. So you might want to just turn back a couple of pages and we'll see an interesting con- uh, context here. When we get to Genesis 18.1, it just says he's outside of his tent in the Oaks of Mamre. But that ought to vibrate something in your thinking. First time it appears is in Genesis 13.18. We're told then, notice that, that's important, that's a little time word, then, indicates something previously had uh, taken place. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to Yahweh. Now, what has just happened? Well, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is called. He leaves or the Chaldees. He goes up to Haran. Eventually, he makes his way to the land of Canaan. And God reiterated the promise of the land in Genesis 15:7, And so he is now in the land. But then there's famine in the land. And so Abraham left the land. 
And when he left the land, he's outside the plan of God, and he's gone down to try to find a solution by going to Egypt. And what God is doing is testing Abraham's faith. Of course, we saw that, and he flunked that test. Finally, he moves back to Canaan, and when he's there, he's hit with another test. And this test involves prosperity. And in the prosperity that he's enjoying and that Lot is enjoying, there's now too many people. Uh, They have several hundred slaves or servants each, and the land is too small to accommodate them. That's because there's still a famine going on. So Abraham handles this test how? Grace orientation. What are we going to deal with in Genesis 18? Grace orientation. See the connection? He deals with grace orientation. He says, well, Lot, you just take your pick. You may be uh, manipulative in this situation. You're Uh, Servants are always causing trouble with my servants, but nevertheless, I'm going to give you the pick of the land. You just look anywhere you want to. Take the best if you want it, but you make your choice, and then I will take whatever is left over. And so Lot made his choice, and he moved where? To the cities of the plain. Interesting. Genesis 18, the second half of 18 and 19, deals with the problem of Lot living in Sodom. See the connection between the two uh, chapters, the two episodes. And then after that, God appears to Abraham, reconfirms his promise in Genesis 13:14. Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. It's a reconfirmation of the land part of the Abrahamic covenant. And in response, in gratitude, Abraham moves to Hebron, where he, which he makes his permanent headquarters, his permanent home, and he builds an altar there in proclamation of God's grace. That's the dynamic. Now, in Genesis 18, we come up and we just have this reference that Abraham is at his house in Hebron by the Oaks of Mamre. So what does that tell us? He's, he's home. This is his headquarters. He's oriented to God's grace. He is resting. We look at the verse and we read that he's sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, living here in Houston, we have some concept of what that means, to just sit and rest in the shade uh, in the afternoon. And this would be early afternoon because in that part of the country, it would grow cool fairly rapidly in the evening. Not like Houston, where when you read that low temperature, it says last night the low was 76. It didn't hit the 70s until 5 o'clock. It made it to 76 by 5.15, and by 5.30 it was back up to 80. That was one of the interesting things I learned when I went, moved up to Connecticut was the low was usually about 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and then it would stay that way till the next morning. So if the low was high was 90 and the low was 76, it was probably 80 by 9 o'clock at night cools off very nicely. In the desert, it really cools off quickly in the evening, and that would be the situation here in Hebron. So in the, it's early afternoon. It's the hottest part of the day, and Abraham is just sitting in the shade in, the, in his tent door resting. And we might speculate that he is contemplating the promise of God that has just been confirmed in chapter 17, thinking about how God is going to bring this about. Because in Genesis chapter 17, uh, if you look at verse uh, 20, let me see, 21, 
God said, But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So this is a year later. God says this is when he's going to be born. Now, he is going to make another promise in Genesis 18 to Sarah and say, By the time I come back next year, the child will be born. So this is probably some uh, few weeks or two to three months, no later than three months, so it's between just a week and three months, since uh, the events of chapter 17. So Abraham is contemplating that situation, and he's thinking about God's provision of the seed and how that's going to come about. And suddenly he looks up, and there are three men standing there. We have an interesting verb here. The Lord appeared to him, and the verb is the nifal form. That's the passive form of the, of the verb ra'ah, which is the standard verb to see or to look. But in the passive, it means to be seen or to be revealed or to appear. So it indicates a sudden appearance here. Because Abraham has not seen him coming. He didn't look down the road and see these three men approaching. He just suddenly looks up, and there they are. And we see that from uh, verse 2. He looks up, and there they are, and he responds. Verse 2 reads, So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. It's fairly sudden. Where did they come from? This may have been his first hint that these were supernatural visitors. Behold, three men were standing by him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself down to the ground. So there was clearly something about their appearance that indicated that they were people of uh, prestige, people of significance, people of importance, and so he treats them with respect. This shows his orientation to grace. He's very hospitable here, and we'll look at that in just a minute. But first, we need to decide who these three men are. Now, it is clear from the conversation that goes on that one of them is identified as Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God that is indicated in the Old Testament, and here it is a reference to the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. It's not God the Father. It's the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ because John tells us in John chapter 1 that no man has seen the Father at any time. So these appearances in the Old Testament, these theophanies or these appearances of God are appearances of the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. So that's one of them. But who are the other two? Well, when we get into chapter 19, we'll see that the other two that are with him are angels. But how do they appear? They appear as men. When Abraham looks at them, he doesn't see anything that distinguishes them from any ordinary human being. So this leads us to make a few observations here related to angelology. A few observations related to angelology. First of all, we have to recognize that angels are created as non-material beings. They are not physically material as we are. They don't uh, have to follow the same laws of biology, the same laws of physics, which apply to us. They are immaterial beings. Their bodies are probably composed of light. This is the second point. From several passages, it appears that angels have bodies that are composed of light or something like light. 
For example, in Hebrews 1.7, which we'll get into on Thursday night, they appear as flames of fire. You constantly have this indication of light and this light uh, motif when angels are there. This would allow them to appear and disappear. Uh, they could travel at the speed of light. They could move through physical objects, a number of things like that. But they would not be material in the way that you and I are material creatures. This leads to a third observation, that angels would have the ability to transform themselves into material creatures that possess all of the characteristics of material bodies. That's what we see here. They have transformed themselves so that they appear as material creatures. For all purposes, as far as Abraham can tell, they are material creatures. They eat. They drink. They rest. They sleep. He's going to wash their feet. Uh, later on, we're going to see that they, uh, uh, when, they're, when they're trapped inside Lot's home and the uh, uh, homosexual sodomite uh, perverts outside the, uh, Lot's house are trying to pull them out into the, time, into the town square in order to uh, sodomize them. That's where the word comes from. They, uh, their hands are outside the door and they have to pull them back in. These are physical terms. So these immaterial creatures of light are able to transform themselves into uh, to have some kind of material body. They eat, sleep, wash, they're touched, they rest for all observational empirical purposes. They appear no differently than you or I. And from this, point number four, observation number four, we must conclude that angels are able to take on all biological functions of a material human body. Now, it doesn't say that, but if they're able to do all of these other things, then they're able to take on all biological functions. And this is, gives us an indication of what went on in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, when the sons of God... And that term always refers to angels in the Old Testament. And it can refer to either demons, the fallen angels, or it can refer to the holy angels. That the sons of God looked on the daughters of men and took them as wives. And this is further indicated in Jude 1, 6, and 7. And when you do the proper exegesis of these verses, it indicates that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is imitating the immoral sexual sin of the angels of a previous time. Jude 1, 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, that is their own natural uh, physical body, in relation, or, or their own natural immaterial body, whatever God had originally ordained for them, uh, this is the abode that they leave. And he's reserved in everlasting chains, this group of angels, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. These aren't Demons. These aren't the active demons of Jesus' day. These aren't active demons of today. These are a group of angels who committed some infraction so grievous that they are chained in uh, everlasting darkness until the final judgment. And then there's a comparison. These angels are then compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is said to be like that of the angels. Verse 7 reads, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, to these what? To these angels, having given themselves over to sexual immorality 
and gone after strange flesh, that's homosexuality, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. What's the point? The point is that the sexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah imitated the sexual sin of these angels. And as difficult as it is to understand what was going on in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it's clear from passages like Genesis 18 that angels are able to take on all of these functions of a physical, material body, and this would include the sexual function. Let's get back to our passage now. In verse 3, Abraham exhibits his grace orientation to these visitors. Notice he's courteous, he's kind, he is exhibiting uh, good manners. He says, my Lord, and here he uses the Hebrew Adonai, A-Y ending. That's the first uh, word that I have up there on the screen. Uh, He could have used Adonai, which has simply an I ending. Uh, Adonai with the A-Y ending indicates that that would be the Lord. And so it indicates a recognition or at least the possibility that, that he, he recognizes that this is the Lord. If, you had, if he had used the variation Adonai with just an I ending, that would have indicated a, a respectful term for another human being. So he says, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight. What's that word for favor? That's grace. So so you see, at the very beginning, the writer sets this up, that we're talking about grace orientation. If I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. In other words, stay and let's have Sunday lunch. We're going to sit down and have a meal together. In verse 4 he says, Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet. He's going to wash the feet of the angel of the Lord, and these other two angels. And rest yourself under the tree. You look tired. It's a hot part of the afternoon. You've appeared here and you have the appearance of someone traveling. Of course, the Lord would not be tired. The angels would not be tired, but they had that appearance. They looked like human beings. Verse 5, And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you've said. So he's going to bring a morsel of bread. Now, that's not what he's going to do. He is uh, not even going to run down to the local Randalls and and pick up food. This is an afternoon event. Remember, it's the heat of the day. And he is going to prepare a meal, and this is going to take some time. Now, what's the purpose of this meal? What is going on here? Well, we have to recognize that there's an important background to this. Eating together is a picture of fellowship that extends throughout the Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Eating is also a recognition that there has been a covenant arrangement made, and we are celebrating this covenant, this contract between two parties, and we're celebrating the fact that there is now peace. And we recognize that this eating of this meal occurs immediately after the reconfirmation of the covenant ceremony in Genesis chapter 17. Now, we see a similar event in Genesis 26, 28 to 30. We're not going to turn there now, but in that chapter there's been a, a 
covenant sealed with Abimelech, who's the leader of the Philistines, and he and Isaac sit down together and they have a meal together. It is a picture that there is now peace between the two parties involved in the covenant or the contract. So that's the main idea. Now think about this as you go through Scripture. Israel ate a meal at the foot of Mount Sinai after initially hearing the words of the law from Moses in Exodus 24, verse 11. They have this meal signifying that there is peace between them and the Lord. In the Levitical offerings, one of the offerings described in Leviticus chapter 3 and then expanded in Leviticus 7, verses 11 to 21, is a peace offering. This is when the uh, individual would bring meal, uh, ground meal and bread, to the uh, tabernacle, and it would be a peace offering, and they would eat this on the site of the tabernacle. And this was to signify that there was now a peace between uh, the worshiper and the Lord. It is a symbol of fellowship, intimacy, between the Lord and the individual. Another example that we see in the Old Testament takes place in Judges chapter 6. There the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and is calling Gideon to a specific role to function as a judge and to lead the Israelites in victory over the Midianites. After his, at the conclusion of that, Gideon brought a meal offering to the angel of the Lord, prepared the meal, laid it out on the altar, and it is consumed by fire. Afterward, or at that point, the Lord said, Peace, and Gideon names the altar, The Lord is peace. That's in Judges chapter 6, verse 14. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ picks up this same analogy and said that salvation was symbolized by what? Eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, that's not literal. See, this is what what happens when you fail to recognize legitimate metaphor in Scripture. He is not talking about literally eating his flesh or drinking his blood. What he is talking about is appropriating himself or receiving or taking him in To your person, it's a picture of salvation. Anyone can eat, anyone can drink, anyone can believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. So eating and drinking is a picture of receiving the Lord, accepting Him as your Savior. And this is what's going on, what is repeated symbolically in the Lord's table. So see, the Lord's table is the idea of having a communal meal of fellowship with the Lord. That's why we call it communion. We're coming together, we're having a symbolic meal representing the fact that there is peace between us and God because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. We see that eating is a picture of Christian fellowship. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, which is a much maligned and misused verse, We read, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This is not a salvation verse. It's not addressed to unbelievers. It is addressed to the believers in the carnal church of Laodicea. Two verses earlier, the Lord says that he loves this congregation, and he doesn't use the Greek verb agapao. He uses the verb phileo. And the Lord never uses uh, phileo when the object is unbelievers. 
only believers are the object of his phileo, his intimate love. So this is a picture of fellowship, and that's what we have in Genesis chapter 18. Now, in Genesis 18, Abraham is exhibiting hospitality. Hospitality is a manifestation of grace orientation and impersonal love for others. It is a sign of personal generosity to others, to not just to those you know, but to those you don't know, to strangers. Pastors are to be hospitable to others. This is a requirement given in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. The Greek word is philoxenos. Philos from love, xenos from stranger. It's a love for strangers. Pastors are expected to be hospitable. And all that that involves, opening your door to those who are coming through, uh, putting up missionaries, uh, somebody's in need of a place to stay, uh, being hospitable, feeding them, uh, offering them meals. All of this is part of hospitality. But it's not just expected of pastors. See, most of the requirements in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus uh, 1 for pastors are expected of all believers. 1 Peter 4.9 is a command to all believers, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Notice that little qualification there. No griping or complaining. Be open, be generous to others. Uh, Open your house if you have room, if you have the opportunity to missionaries when they come through. And we have speakers for conferences. A great opportunity to say, you know, I'd like to put them up and and learn from them, talk to them, get to know them a little better. Uh, If a missionary is coming through, have that opportunity. Take them out for a meal. This is all part of hospitality. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, folks, somebody always comes along and says, See, see, you know, some, some beggar's going to come knock on your door. You need to bring him in your house and feed him and, you know, put your family in danger because you don't know anything about him because it might be an angel. The background for this verse is the passage we're talking about. Abraham unwittingly, unknowingly, is entertaining angels. He's being hospitable. That's the background for uh, Hebrews 13.2. It is not saying that when you let some uh, street person into your house to give him a hamburger, that it might be an angel. Completely false application. Okay, Genesis 18.6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. That's almost a bushel. He's baking a lot of bread. But we may not have the measurements right, but as far as we can see, this was supposed to be three seahs, S-E-A-H, and that would be about, um, one seah would be about uh, three or four, no, one seah would be six quarts. So three seahs would be 18 quarts. That's a lot of meal. That's going to make a lot of bread. So he... Uh, commands Sarah to make bread, and then he runs to the herd, goes out the back flap, takes off for the herd, no matter how, we don't know how far that was, took a tender and good calf and gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. Now, I've spent a few time in my life butchering a deer or two that I shot. Now, I know that may upset some of you animal lovers, Bambi lovers, but I feel dressed and butchered, completely butchered a 
a deer more, on more than one occasion, and it takes time. And this is going to be a young calf. This is about a two- or three-hour process. And then they have to bring it back in, and the, the breads had to rise and bake the bread. So the Lord and the two angels are there for several hours. Makes you wonder what they talked about. Maybe they just took a nap during that, that whole time in the heat of the day. But Abraham goes out, and he prepares the meal, and he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them and stood by them under the tree as they ate. Notice he is functioning like a servant. This is part of grace orientation. And then in verses 9 through 15, we get at the heart of the visit. They then said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Like the Lord didn't know. So this is the same kind of question when uh, the Lord shows up in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve had sinned, and he said, where are you? He knew perfectly good and well where they were. He just wants to point out where they are. Where is Sarah, your wife? So Abraham said, here in the tent. And he, that is the Lord, said, well, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. That is the normal cycle of life, i.e. a nine-month gestation period for the birth of a baby. I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, Sarah has these prestigious visitors there enjoying the meal that they've prepared. And she's hanging out by the tent door, eavesdropping on the conversation. And as she hears this, she starts laughing in her soul. She's not rude enough to laugh out loud or guffaw where she'll be heard, but she's laughing because she just doesn't believe this is possible. Now, Abraham laughed in the last chapter, but God didn't rebuke him. See, God... I mean, Abraham's laughter was, was a laughter of joy. You know, boy, this is great. I just can't believe this is finally going to happen. Whereas Abraham, I mean, Sarah now is well advanced in age, past the age of childbearing, and there's doubt. There's an element of skepticism in, in her. And she's not sure that this can even take place. And so in verse 12 we read, Then Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, look at me. Shall I have pleasure? She's talking about sexual pleasure there and the pleasure of having a child. My Lord being old also, this isn't going to happen. And in verse 13, she, she, we have the word laugh, which is the Hebrew verb tzachach, uh, which means to laugh. And this is the root for the name of Isaac, Yitzhak, meaning laughter. So for the rest of their lives, whenever they called the name of their child, they would be reminded of the fact that, that, uh, that Sarah had a little skepticism that God could bring about this particular miracle. And then in verse 14, God says, Is there anything too hard for the Lord? See, we've seen some great illustrations of God's character here. He's omniscient. He says, and, and within the year's time, she's going to give birth to a, to a child. 
He is omnipotent. He's going to bring it about. He says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And the word here for too, translated too hard is actually the Hebrew word pala, which means to be marvelous or wonderful. It is a word that is only applied to the Lord in the Old Testament, and it is applied in Isaiah 9.16 that he will be called wonderful counselor. This is that same word. It indicates the, that God is able to do the impossible, that no matter how Difficult things may be in our life, no matter how overwhelming circumstances may be, no matter how depressing, discouraging, whatever the negatives might be, God is the God who can bring about the impossible. Jesus said in Matthew 19:26, "With people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. This is the omnipotence of the Lord. And in Luke 1:37, in a context similar to the one we're in, Gabriel tells Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. She had a little skepticism also. Nothing is impossible with the Lord. He is the one who made all the physical laws, all the biological laws. He is the one, of course, who can bring about his desired plan. And that's what omnipotence means. It doesn't mean God can do anything. He can't make a square circle. But God can do anything that he wills to accomplish. That's what omnipotence means. He is all-powerful. He can bring about anything that he wills to accomplish. So what we've learned in this chapter so far is the importance of grace orientation, that when you are oriented in your thinking to grace, it exhibits itself in kindness to others, in good manners, courtesy, and generosity and hospitality. Abraham's grace orientation is revealed in his hospitality toward strangers. Even though he suspected it was God, it's more than that. He goes beyond that. In his grace orientation, if he suspected it's God, he is also demonstrating his gratitude to the Lord. And the meal itself signifies the fact that there is this covenant between Abraham and the Lord. He is at peace with what God is doing in his life, and he is in fellowship with him. Now, next time, we'll look at the second part of this chapter when Abraham intercedes for Lot and for the people of Sodom. Well, this is analogous to intercessory prayer, but as he intercedes for them, this is a function of his being a blessing to others and fulfilling his role under the Abrahamic covenant with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to uh, come to an understanding of the importance of our own orientation to grace, and that this is based on understanding your grace as it's exhibited at the cross. Father, we just uh, pray that you challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.